This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Uh, today we'll be going back to our rapid fire podcast format, and we have a very special guest with us today. This is Dr. Emily Hughes, an internal medicine resident from the University of Toronto, and she's very well known to the Rounds Table family. Um, so I'll let her give her, her own introduction as well. Hey, Justin, so excited to be back on the show and back with you. It's amazing. Justin and I went to med school together, so it's really exciting to be able to record an episode of The Rounds Table together. Thanks for having me, Justin. No worries. So let's begin with the paper that you've selected for this Rounds Table episode, which is sort of centered around preventative health, if there's a theme that we can go with for today. Awesome. So I will be uh, presenting the paper, Long-Term Secondary Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease with a Mediterranean Diet and a Low-Fat Diet, the CordioPrev Trial. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, May the 4th of 2022. Alrighty. And what research question were they looking at? Well, Mediterranean and low-fat diets are effective in primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. So this long-term randomized trial compared the effects of Mediterranean and low-fat diets on secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease. Oh, that sounds really interesting. And why is this important? Well, we know that lifestyle is a determinant in both incidence and recurrence of cardiovascular events, in addition to drugs and invasive measures. And evidence from clinical trials on the effect of a Mediterranean diet in secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease is scarce. So not only does this trial add evidence for the Mediterranean diet in secondary prevention, but it's actually the only trial to assess the effect of the Mediterranean diet against an active comparator. So it's really important. No, that, that's very fair. And I feel like we recommend this type of diet to all patients, really, that we encounter in both the inpatient and outpatient setting. So it's a very good topic to study. Uh, what was their study design? So absolutely, Justin, just to get to your point, you know, um, we recommend this diet all the time. And that's kind of why I was shocked that there was no large trial with a large follow-up period on the role of the Mediterranean diet for secondary prevention. Actually, the only evidence we have is for primary prevention. So that's why this trial was really important. This was a single-center randomized clinical trial in patients with coronary heart disease at a hospital in Spain. And one liter of extra virgin olive oil per week was provided to the participants in the Mediterranean diet group. Healthy food bag packs that were rich in complex carbohydrates were provided to the participants in the low-fat group. Eligible patients were 20 to 75 years old with established coronary artery disease and were free of a clinical event related to coronary artery disease within the previous six months. Patients were then randomized one-to-one to the Mediterranean diet or the low-fat diet. Randomization was blinded to physicians, dietitians, and the cardioprevention team. The intervention had a mean follow-up of seven years. That's a super long follow-up time. Dietary adherence was monitored throughout the trial. Well, that's definitely a very long follow-up period. And what outcomes or primary outcomes were they looking at? Yes. So the primary outcome was a composite of major cardiovascular events, including MI, revascularization, ischemic stroke, peripheral arterial disease, and cardiovascular death for the follow-up of seven years. Wow. Okay. So very comprehensive outcome as well. Did they have any alternative outcomes or secondary outcomes, or was this sort of what they were looking at? So secondary outcomes of interest were the individual components of the primary outcome score. That makes sense. And sort of what was their table one? What demographics were the patient population comprised of? So patients were on average 60 years old, 83% of them were male, and 17% were female. Approximately 60% had metabolic syndrome, and their average weight was about 85 kilograms. 68% had hypertension, and approximately 60% had a previous history of MI. Almost 70% were either current or former smokers, and the vast majority of patients were on antiplatelets, statins, ACE inhibitors or ARBs, and beta blockers. Your classic cardiac patient. 
Alrighty. And it seems similar to other studies that there was definitely a bias towards male patients relative to female individuals enrolled in the study. There were, and we'll get into that in a minute. And uh, what results did they encounter? Well, a total of 1,002 patients were enrolled, 500 in the low-fat group and 502 in the Mediterranean group. The primary endpoint occurred in 87 in the Mediterranean diet group and in 111 in the low-fat group. This corresponded to a decrease in hazard ratio of 26%. These effects were more evident in men, with primary endpoints occurring in 67 of 414 men in the Mediterranean diet group versus 94 in the low-fat group. So it definitely does seem like the results favor a Mediterranean diet. Uh, What were the main limitations that they found? Well, the trial found that the superiority of the Mediterranean diet was higher in the male participants. So one interpretation is that could suggest that sex is a factor in the dietary response, but actually more likely, to your earlier point, there wasn't enough power in the female group. Remember, over 80% of the participants in the trial were male. And when we do subgroup analyses like this, and we use a smaller sample size, we tend to underestimate the effect size. So perhaps this Mediterranean diet was just as effective in women. However, there weren't enough women included in the trial in order to detect this effect. Therefore, the fact that we don't see an effect in women could actually be a false negative. And my second limitation is that the trial was done in a Mediterranean country, making implementation of a Mediterranean diet easier. So there could be some issues with generalizability if we were to apply these findings to the North American population. I definitely agree with those limitations. And in particular, I think it's important to consider challenges that may be encountered with specific types of statistical analysis that are conducted on smaller subgroups that may not have power, especially when we see these different sex factors. And I also agree with um, the implementation of diets um, is quite challenging in general, especially when you may not have access to the specific food groups that are as prevalent as they would be in a Mediterranean country. Absolutely. And so for us uh, and the listeners uh, of the Rounds Table, what's sort of the take-home point of this paper? Well, to sum it all up, in secondary prevention, the Mediterranean diet was superior to the low-fat diet in preventing major cardiovascular events. And is this practice changing for you? You know, the results of this study certainly support the use of the Mediterranean diet in secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease. I'm particularly impressed by the long follow-up period, seven years, but I'm interested in future studies with sufficient power to detect sex-related effects in women. I agree. It would be very nice to see if there actually are any sex effects related in any future studies that are conducted. Yes. And as we know with subgroup analyses, they can be hypothesis generating, but we actually need to design an a priori trial in order to confirm validity. Okay. So that brings me to the end of my article. Uh, Justin, Tell us, what are you presenting today? Thank you, Emily. Uh, Today, I'll be talking about a paper recently published in JAMA in May of 2022, so over this past month. And its title is The Incidence and Progression of Alcohol-Associated Liver Disease After Medical Therapy for Alcohol Use Disorder. Sounds interesting. Sticking with our theme of preventive medicine. I love it. And Justin, what's the research question in this study? The question that this team was trying to investigate was really to ascertain whether medical addiction therapy was associated with an altered risk of developing any sort of alcohol-related liver disease. Moreover, they also sought to ascertain whether medical addiction therapy was associated with reduced risk of hepatic decompensation in patients that were already diagnosed with alcohol-associated cirrhosis. Wow. Thinking of the population that I see on general internal medicine, this trial certainly could have application. Why was it important? 
So I think that this paper is important on many different levels, but first and foremost, alcohol-associated liver disease is among the most common and devastating complications of excessive alcohol use. Moreover, alcohol-associated liver disease sort of manifests in a wide spectrum of conditions, ranging from hepatic steatosis all the way to cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma. And in the internal medicine context, we most often see alcohol-associated liver disease present as severe hepatitis as well, which has a startling mortality rate over three months of 30%. Moreover, there has been a surge in the incidence of alcohol-associated liver disease in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, where many individuals are increasing their consumption of alcohol. So this is something that's important for us to investigate. Important and timely. 100%. And really, there are some both FDA and uh, Canadian drug approved medications in the treatment of alcohol-associated liver disease and alcohol use disorder. But really, there is still a large paucity of information and in really how effective these are at treating different liver conditions that manifest from alcohol use. My interest is piqued. Uh, tell me a little bit about the study design. So more generally, this is a retrospective cohort study that was conducted through sort of combing through uh, the Massachusetts General Hospital Biobank, which is an ongoing research initiative that recruited essentially 130,000 patients between its start in 2010 all the way up until August 2021. And from that, they combed through all of this literature uh, and patient biobank uh, information to determine which individuals had alcohol-associated liver disease or received treatment for some sort of alcohol use disorder. Perfect. And what were the medications that they studied? And so they studied several medications that have been used for alcohol use disorder. These include disulfiram, acamprosate, naltrexone, gabapentin, baclofen, and topiramate. So many different medications. And they also included individuals who uh, received uh, psychotherapy as a treatment for alcohol use disorder as well. Perfect. And what were the outcomes? So they looked at three main outcomes, the first being the incidence of hepatic decompensation when medical addiction therapy was initiated after a cirrhosis diagnosis. They also looked at the incidence of decompensation after therapy in general, regardless of whether or not they had a preceding diagnosis of cirrhosis. And finally, they also looked at the incidence of developing some sort of alcohol-associated liver disease after the initiation of therapy for alcohol use disorder. Okay, that makes sense to me. And of the patients who were included in the trial, what did they end up looking like? Can you walk me through the table one? 100%. So ultimately, after combing through the 130,000 patients that were listed in this biobank, they identified around 10,000 patients that had a history of alcohol use disorder, of whom around 5,800 were male, or 60.4% of the sample size, and around 3,800 were female, so around 39.5%. Generally, these patients were around the same age of 55 years old, and most patients had a white or Caucasian race, as identified on their demographic data, and this number was around 83% of individuals. Furthermore, amongst the patients with alcohol use disorder, 11.8% had alcohol-associated liver disease, and 40.5% of this population was treated with some sort of medical addiction therapy. And sort of when you comb through further demographic data within this table one, like I mentioned before, most of the patients that were receiving treatment were white or Caucasian. And many of the individuals in the treatment group that were receiving therapy had concurrent access to psychotherapy, had a history of mental illness, had other substance use disorders concurrently with alcohol use, and also had a higher proportion of homelessness. Gotcha. And what were the results? So... 
going through the three main groups of questions that they were looking at, with the first being an incidence of any sort of alcohol-associated liver disease after medical addiction therapy. Essentially, they found that the receipt of any pharmacotherapy for alcohol use disorder was independently associated with decreased incidence of alcohol-associated liver disease. And this had an adjusted odds ratio of 0.37, and this p-value was less than 0.01. And this was found to be dose-dependent, so patients who were treated for a longer period of time had a further reduced likelihood of developing any sort of alcohol-related liver disease. And this data also showed that the use of gabapentin and topiramate in particular, in addition to naltrexone, really sort of potentiated this effect. Okay. My interest remains piqued, Justin, with this positive result. Uh, tell me about the other two primary outcomes. And so going on to the second primary outcome of looking at the incidence of hepatic decompensation after medical addiction therapy, really what they found in their multivariable analysis was that the receipt of any pharmacotherapy for alcohol use disorder was associated with reduced incidence of hepatic decompensation. And this was seen in particular with naltrexone and gabapentin, and also slightly with topiramate. Moreover, similar to the first primary outcome, each year medical addiction therapy was associated with a further decrease in the likelihood of any sort of hepatic decompensation event. And so it does seem like these medications are very helpful in many different ways. Okay, so it sounds like not only does medical addiction therapy stop the incidence of alcoholic liver disease, but it also decreases the incidence of hepatic decompensation. Is that correct? That's an excellent summary, Emily. Awesome. Okay. And then the last primary outcome, take me through what they found there. Alrighty. So with the last primary outcome, they were looking at hepatic decompensation when medical addiction therapy was initiated after a diagnosis of cirrhosis. And essentially what they found was that patients who received medical addiction therapy after a diagnosis of cirrhosis were less likely to experience hepatic decompensation with an adjusted odds ratio of 0.41. And in further analysis with a Kaplan-Meier curve, they found that the association of medical addiction therapy with reduced odds of hepatic decompensation persisted over the 10-year period after their first diagnosis of cirrhosis. So this effect was seen very much long after they were diagnosed um, and started on some sort of alcohol use treatment. Wow. You know, I know, Justin, that we have a good stuff segment coming in this episode, but I have to say this is good stuff. I very much agree. <laughs> good stuff before the good stuff. I love it. <laughs> All right. Before I get too excited, tell me, uh, what are some limitations of this study? So unfortunately, the good stuff with this paper is definitely blunted by some of the limitations. And first and foremost, the study was associative by virtue of the fact that it was a retrospective cohort investigation. And therefore, it may possibly have had many different unknown confounders that couldn't have been uh, included or incorporated into their analysis. Furthermore, the composition of the cohort itself was not balanced, in particular, female identifying individuals, as well as those of racial and ethnic minority groups were quite underrepresented in their uh, demographics that comprised the study itself. And even though they counted first sex, race, ethnicity as an example in the multivariable analysis, the participants in the biobank may not be actually representative of the general population in particular. And an additional thing that I was considering as a limitation was that the adherence to pharmacotherapy in the context of alcohol use disorder or really any substance use disorder is really challenging to assess. And generally, this would likely generate 
an underestimation of the effect of these medications. Um, but I think that's also something important for us to consider. Sure. I guess, though, with that last limitation that, you know, if the patients weren't adherent to their alcohol use therapy, we would expect to see a more negative result. And the fact that we still saw a positive result shows that, you know, maybe at least for this particular limitation, the effect size was greater than estimated. But you do raise some other very important limitations that I think we should keep in mind. So some good stuff with a few caveats. And Justin, what is your take home point? So my take home point for the study is that these results really highlight an association between receiving some sort of medical addiction therapy and a decreased likelihood of developing alcohol-associated liver disease in patients that have alcohol use disorder and the lower incidence of hepatic decompensation events in patients with cirrhosis. Moreover, I think that this really underscores the importance that clinicians should consider the use of um, treating alcohol use disorder as a means to prevent uh, any sort of alcohol-associated liver disease. Great. I've always valued the opinions of my addictions colleagues, uh, and I continue to value them. So I'm I'm interested to see if they um, uptake this uh, trial into their practice. For you, is this trial practice changing? I think that's hard for me to say, just given the limitations. But in general, I would say that this paper is practice reinforcing, if I'm allowed to say that. In particular, I think that results of the study really highlight the importance of medical addiction therapy in the setting of uh, any sort of alcohol use disorder or in any individuals that have any sort of alcohol-associated liver disease. And just in general, outside of alcohol use disorder, there's so much evidence that supports the initiation and treatment of substance use disorder in any way that we can. And like we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, so many of the patients we care for in medicine, regardless of whether it's an internal medicine, have so many different mental health challenges and substance use challenges that intersect their presenting complaints to hospital, for example. And I think that this paper just generally reinforces the importance of taking time with these individuals to really initiating some sort of pharmacotherapy or treatment that can help them, especially because this paper also looked at the use of psychotherapy and how that was beneficial as well. But I I think that as a final point, we really should include individuals that are from uh, minority and ethnic backgrounds as well as from lower socioeconomic statuses, because I think that would really allow us to generalize this data and this information to the population that we care for. Absolutely. And just to your point, Justin, too, I'd be curious to know if alcohol use disorder is more prevalent in some of those minority groups that you mentioned. So even more important to make sure that uh, the findings are generalizable to those groups. Excellent. Okay. I think that brings us to the end of our two papers that we were going to cover. Now, it's my favorite part of the episode, the good stuff segment. We had tons of good stuff already, but should we move on to the good stuff? I agree. What what good stuff do you have to share today, Emily? So my Good Stuff article is actually an article that was published in The Guardian on May the 30th of this year, and the title caught my eye, Coffee Drinkers May Be at Lower Risk of Early Death, Study Suggests. And I don't know about you, Justin, but my coffee consumption has gone up exponentially in residency, which is why I want to share the results of this observational study out of China, recently published in Annals of Internal Medicine. Essentially, it showed that people who drink a moderate amount of coffee every day have a lower risk of early death. How could this be? Well, there were definitely some caveats to this conclusion. The study was observational, it relied on self-reporting of coffee consumption, and in general, the coffee drinkers were more likely to be affluent, therefore perhaps live healthier lives than the non-coffee drinkers. So around the press of this study, there were definitely lots of caveats that were mentioned. But that said, I might personally choose to gloss over those caveats and continue to drink my daily coffees, plural, in peace. 
Well, I, I feels very serendipitous that I'm in fact having another coffee right now. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I agree. I will also continue to drink as really too much coffee uh, in, in a day. Uh, but no, thank you for sharing this good stuff, Emily. Awesome. Justin, what's your good stuff today? My good stuff today is on the topic of substance use disorder. And recently, British Columbia decided to decriminalize uh, the possession of up to 2.5 grams of hard drugs. And this really is fundamentally based in harm reduction. And I think that it's an incredibly positive step in caring for individuals that have substance use disorder in many different ways. And I think it's a very good upstream thing that can be done to really ensure that individuals who do have substance use disorder are um, protected and aren't penalized for their substance use. Awesome. I agree. Well, Justin, it looks like this brings our episode to a close. I just want to say thank you so much again for having me on the air. It's always a pleasure to be on the rounds table. Thank you so much, Emily. And uh, this is an incredibly fun conversation and I can't wait to share it with everyone. With that, a coffee for the road. The Roundstable is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Roundstable, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, Editor-in-Chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.